You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Welcome to the special widening gyre edition of the Bob Zadig Show. I'm your host, Charlie Dice, filling in for Bob with your usual weekly dose of libertarian discussion, plus a little poetry courtesy of William Butler Yeats to start the hour which I'm privileged to be spending with Michael Osterlang. Michael is a leading expert in the field of transpartisan public policy, particularly in the areas of privacy, national security, cybersecurity, and defense. Michael, it's good to be with you today. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Now, Michael, you are no stranger to radio. You host O-Radio, which is a show exploring individual and social transformation. And you're also behind some of the most interesting transpartisan coalitions I think have ever been assembled. Uh, can you start off just by telling me what do Americans for Tax Reform, the Tea Party Movement, and MoveOn.org have in common? Uh, that's a great question. So back in the day, I, t- I think it's around 2005, 2006, uh, with two other guys, uh, James Plummer and Bradley Jansen, we co-created what was called a Liberty Coalition, which is a coalition of about 96 groups transpartisan all of the political spectrum from left to right and all the groups you just mentioned including 93 others were part of the coalition and the organizing purpose of the coalition was on civil liberties so at that time there are two big issues one was the patriot act uh, already been passed but a few provisions were being prepared to be sunset so we're fighting the battle again um, and the real id also emerged on the scene around that same time too uh, Real ID is now law. It's being implemented in most states. I call it the national identification system. Uh, but that was a secondary issue we also fought against, too. And, you know, over the years, we, we worked on a wide variety of uh, Fourth Amendment type issues, uh, as well as transparency in government. And that's the kind of issues that brought those strange bedfellows together. And that's kind of what I'm known for in D.C. over the years. I've been doing this for almost 19 years is uh, bringing the left and right together on a wide variety of different issues. Interesting. I mean, we hear all the time that we're more divided than ever before, and I probably spend too much time on Twitter to possibly argue that. Um, now you don't just have less left versus right. You also have kind of leftist versus progressive, left versus uh, never Trump versus make America great again. You could even argue that within libertarianism, there are several distinct tribes between the, the anarchists, the minarchists, the people who are more focused on civil liberties, the people who are maybe a little bit more hawkish. What made the Liberty Coalition different from all of those other political identities and tribes out there? You know, and I think you, you're using the word tribe is really important because I think it's kind of embedded in us as human beings. We're very tribal in orientation. I think that's evolutionarily true, not just today's world. But there's a core set of values, you might call them American values, uh, in terms of civil liberties and privacy and human autonomy uh, and transparency that was able to help organize everyone in terms of in terms of liberty coalition, as an example, and some of the other coalitions that you and I will talk about as well. So there are values that kind of transcend tribal interests or partisan interests, uh, which is a great way of organizing people. And it doesn't require you to give up your partisanship or your tribal identity, but it's a, it's a way of saying there's something bigger than my group. And in this case, in terms of Liberty Coalition, it was protecting the Fourth Amendment or reducing the scope and uh, authority of the federal government in terms of like real ID. So there are ways of transcending tribal identity. And uh, the transpartisan movement is one such way, which is awesome because we need more of that. Bob, uh, the other week, had a couple of guests on the show. Together, he had John Gable and Joan Blades of AllSides.com, which is this initiative to try to get people to see past their filter bubbles. So we tend to create, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or just with the newspapers that we subscribe to or the TV channels that we watch, we, we seek out the sources that will 
confirm our biases. And so we get in these kind of echo chambers where it seems like anyone who doesn't follow uh, what we're hearing is just on a kind of completely different planet. When I am on Twitter, you know, I'm trying to follow some people that will give me a little bit more perspective. But what I think can sometimes end up happening is that the most popular tweets and the ones that in a sense are the most entertaining or that I sometimes even find myself seeking out are the ones that have kind of a divisive message. They tend to pick out their preferred scapegoat and make fools out of their enemies. And we end up with this sort of hyper-polarized online environment. Do you think that that accurately reflects sort of the state of political discourse altogether? Or is there something different happening where policy is actually being made? Yes and no. And at some point, I'd love to talk to you during this call about the conditioned mind and why this works so well in terms of you know our tribal identity and the way we fight one another. But back to your question, I would say yes and no. Uh, if you ignore Fox and MSNBC and talk radio, uh, there is a lot and, and a lot of cooperation across the political spectrum here in D.C. and nationally, you know, at the very at the state level, uh, whether it's criminal justice reform or anti-drug war stuff or anti-war election security, DOD reform, which is I also work on. You know, so there's a lot of people working together across political spectrum, kind of behind the scenes. It's not a secret. It's just that MSNBC and Fox seemingly prefer the conflict than to recognize people actually working together or the talk radio, you know, those, those folks. There is a lot of people working together. And I would say that we are seemingly even more polarized. And I think social media plays a huge role in that. Um, I was at one point a fellow at the Center for Digital Influence Operations. And we studied how foreign, outstate, non-state actors you know, try to influence the public through social media. And it's real. You know, I, I, I've talked to people who say, oh, I've never been influenced. I'm a free thinker. And I'm like, OK, that's why Madison Avenue spends billions of dollars on marketing stuff because you, you can't be reached. You know, it's not true. We all can be influenced and we are influenced, especially when we're locked in these boxes and our, our tribal identities are threatened and we have to fight for our side of things. It, it is very true that we have polarization and it's dangerous. I'm actually concerned that it will lead to violence or more violence on the road. And also there's a lot of cooperation going on in D.C. and at the city level. There's that line that I just played from the, the Yates poem, that the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. But on social media, it sort of seems like the opposite, at least if you're looking at the follower counts, where you know the, the, the people with the biggest audiences, the biggest megaphones, are usually full of some sort of passionate intensity. Why do you think that this is so popular or entertaining to be divisive to sort of hunker down in a particular camp and pander to an audience. You know, I, I saw a tweet today, or maybe it was even on Facebook, you know, about the bipartisan neocon using fear to drive policy mm -hmm. and how, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the things, security theater and the wars or, you know, all about driving fear. And I would say that fear is part of what you're asking about. You know, there, it, it's pretty easy, and if it's not fear, it's some other series of emotions. It's pretty easy to tap into the non-human part of our brain. Um, you know, the reptile obvious, brain. That's why Mark, the reptile, the mammalian brain. You know, like either the fight or flight, or the fight or flight or freeze part of the brain, or the you know the more subtle and less depth emotional side of the brain. You know, we already know that that's how. That's how you know, like Facebook and Twitter and some of these other apps work is you know, triggering parts of your brain that. Yeah, the dopamine flush. So you're like, oh my God, I got, yeah. someone send me another email. Did someone tag me on Facebook? Did someone send me a tweet? You know, so it's pretty easy to tap into the, those parts of the, the, the those parts of the brain um, that are, I would say, are less human. I mean, they're part of us. They're human, but they're not the neocortex. They're not the part of the brain that's rational and thoughtful and can think long term. And I'd say that the state does that. And those actors who are kind of heads of certain tribes and influencers know how to do that really well. They know how to do the us versus them, trigger that part of the brain and their followers to you know, make them fearful of the other side or hate the other side or whatever emotions they want to manipulate. So there's this nice battle and they benefit from it, both monetarily in terms of power and influence. Uh, but that's nothing new. I mean, that's kind of human history. We, we just didn't have the same technology 100 years ago or 5,000 years ago. 
but we've always kind of been dealing with people who know how to manipulate other human beings. And we are pretty easily manipulated, including myself. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm any different than anyone else. Um, I'm hoping that with some of my training and then some other people I know who are still, I'm just so you know, I'm trained as a psychotherapist. And I, I think I, I tend to hopefully understand more about the human mind. And I attempt to do a deeper dive and learn more and more as new research comes in, how this actually works, how to manipulate people. Um, both for positive outcomes as a therapist and as a coach, and then for negative things in terms of stuff that you and I are talking about. But just because I, I think I might have a general understanding how this works doesn't mean I'm not able to manipulate it. So I think we all can and have been at various times in our lives manipulated, whether it's by Hollywood or it's by Madison Avenue or by the state or religious institutions or whoever. You know, there's a lot of institutions out there that try to manipulate us towards their end, and we are easily manipulated. Everyone talks about Russia as the primary instigator of election meddling. In your experience, is this the main thing that people should be worried about? Are there people, uh, you know, Russian bots or the the spending on Facebook ads or you know the clickbait that that clickbait, clickbait fake news? Is this what it's been hyped up to be, or? Are there bigger fish to fry? Well, I, I would say the Russians are part of a larger um, um, ecosystem of entities, institutions, states, non-states attempting to influence us as Americans or us as the West or us as human beings. So the Russians do do this. And it's been pretty clear if you read the reports from the Senate, our Carson reports that this is happening, you know, that they are working to do this. But the Russians are not alone. Uh, the Chinese do it. The North Koreans do it. Look, the Iranians do it, the Israelis do it, we do it. Right. <laughs> when I say we, I mean the American government does it. You know, so uh, everyone is a player to one degree or another attempting to influence other states or people within those states towards their own end. Uh, and, you know, the Russians are really good at it. They've had a lot of experience at the Soviet Union and then, you know, once the Soviet Union fell apart, still as Russia, uh, attempting to influence the public. But, you know, it's not like we have the white hats and they have the black hats. I prefer America to Russia. I, I'm not a fan of the totalitarian regime. But we also have, a, as libertarians would know, we've done some bad things over time, too, attempting to either overthrow other governments or influence other governments or influence populations within other states. You know, so we're not completely the white hat wearers in the world. So we do it too. But as an American, I don't want others to do it to us. And so we should be aware that these other states and non-state actors and people domestically are doing their best to influence us one way or another. So you spoke about the conditioned mind a little bit ago. I wasn't yeah. sure whether that referenced something that we are striving for, like we want to you know, condition our bodies, we want to be in shape, we want to condition our minds, or is it something where our, our minds are conditioned by our... Uh, controllers in some way to fit their narratives. What strong fan of a conditioned body, but I actually mean the opposite. I favor people deconditioning their mind because we have been conditioned. Whether you've gone through, you know, all the years of public education, you're conditioned to think a certain way. We're conditioned by Hollywood, Madison Avenue, by the government, by religious institutions. You know, we have a lot of different forces that condition us to think about the world in a certain way. And one of my favorite things to do, because I wear many different hats, is to work with groups of people to help think you through how we have been conditioned and help free them from that condition. You know, you mentioned my podcast, and one of the ways I frame what I talk about is post-conventional living. You know, there are really interesting experiments going on here in the state in a wide variety of areas, health and fitness and food and travel and transportation and clothing and all kinds of really cool stuff that are going on, energy production, where people are saying, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not really interested in what I would call the corporate state uh, paradigm, the industrial paradigm. You know, I want to experiment outside of this. And there's experiments going on. I'm like, that's really cool. You know, these are people saying, I don't need to be conditioned by these various institutions. I don't need to live the way I've been taught to live by a society or cultures or the various subcultures I live in. I can be somewhat free of them and make better choices for myself and my family. That's really cool. So I, I'm more about deconditioning one's mind and being freer from cultural influences than conditioned mind. I think the conditioned mind is the problem. Talk about some of the stigmas that might prevent people from embracing what you're calling these post-conventional approaches, 
uh, to lifestyle, and maybe along with that, give an example of something that uh, that might fit into this category. Uh, I was browsing your your podcast, and I listened to the one on uh, living off grid, which I think in some people's mind is associated with this kind of uh, you know doomsday prepper. Um, and and right now here in the Bay Area, we we just had our power shut off by PG and E because they think that there are some high winds coming that might create a fire if the if the grid stays on. So for one thing, I think that you know it's not entirely crazy to be looking at uh, being more less reliant on centralized systems and more uh, independent in that regard. But still, I think with a lot of these approaches, you get the sense that if you do it a different way. You're somehow weird, or uh, you know, someone that people want to avoid. How can we overcome that stigma? Or it's it's really funny that you brought up my interview. His name was Gary Collins off the grid because I was literally thinking when you're asking the question, I was like, I should talk about Gary Collins. And literally, an email from Gary just came into my inbox <laughs> five seconds ago. I was like, oh my God, it's in there. So uh, Gary Collins is a writer. He's written quite a few books, Off the Grid Living, RV Living. He just wrote a book on debt, living debt-free, which allows you to be free from the economic or financial system, somewhat free from it. Um, he lives off the grid in Washington State. And that is an example of what I would call post-conventional living because he is no longer connected to the corporate state in terms of energy, uh, which frees him up a lot. Now, it's not easy necessarily to create a house and, and, the, and all the stuff that comes with the needs in the house to live off the grid. But, you know, he has a lot more freedom in, in, and especially with the example you just gave what's happening in California. He's, you know, he's not stuck in that system. Other examples of, and I like that he uses the word grid, like, you know, people are on the grid and it's not just the energy. Think about the grid as the industrial system. Yeah. Other examples of experiments that are going on that people are saying, eh, kind of enough is enough. Um, there are three that I'll, speak briefly to them. Uh, one is like kind of the minimalist movement. And these are people saying, you know, people want to buy stuff. Hey, that's up to them. You know, free market. Cool. But we're choosing not to spend all our money on stuff that we don't need to impress people that we don't like. And by not spending money on things we don't need and to impress people we don't like, we actually don't have to work as hard and as long. We can actually create more space in our life to do things we actually enjoy time with our family or hobbies or, you know, whatever you float your boat. So by not buying into the consumer system to some degree or another, you're freeing yourself up from that. When you buy into the consumer system, it's aspirational. Like you buy the thing to make you feel good and it lasts for like, you know, five minutes or five seconds or five days. And then you're the same schmuck who bought the thing and you're like, ah, I don't feel any good. I need to buy the next thing to make myself feel good about myself. You know, so the consumer system is actually organized to make you feel bad about yourself and you buy this product or this whatever it is to make you feel better for the short run. Then you realize that you're the same person that bought the product in the first place. You haven't changed anything. So you still feel bad about yourself because, you know, the commercials tell you that you're a loser to some degree. You know, maybe not it's more subtle than that, but like, if you buy this car, you'll be really cool. If you buy these clothes, you'll be really cool. If you buy this next gizmo, you'll be really cool. And you buy it and you're still the same person. You've you got to buy the next one. If you get out of that system, you're free from that, con that con consumer mentality. And you can also be free from like, that aspirational living and recognize that you're good as you are. You don't need to buy stuff to be a better human being. Just be a better human being. So the minimalist movement is one example of people kind of in the post-conventional space exiting to some degree or another out of the, the corporate state system or the industrial system. Uh, you and I share interest in MoveNap uh, created by Erwan LaCour. It's a movement system based on evolutionary biology and how we evolved to move versus how we're taught to move by the government or Madison Avenue or the latest you know, fad. Um, and it's fascinating because it challenges the corporate state. <laughs> you know, it's like move like this because this is how we evolved to move. You become healthier, happier, more productive human being. You actually, it's more playful and fun, uh, which is awesome. 
And it also allows you in the fitness space to move outside once once again, of the industrial or the corporate state system, you're freed from that and you're also having fun. And the same thing with, you can look at medicine. You know, there's some really interesting movements within medicine, whether you call it natural medicine or functional medicine, integrative medicine, you know, various terms for kind of more holistic approach to health and well-being. It looks at your body as a whole system, your mind and its influences on the body and the body's influences on the mind. You're embedded in social systems so other people have an effect on you and your health. You're embedded in environments and those have an effect on your health, whether it's air or water or the food. Yeah, so it's like it's a systems approach to health and well-being. That is a lot different than the corporate state medicine, which is symptom management or disease management. You know, so I've spent 10 years on healthcare policy or medical policy at the national level. And the debate is who pays what in the sick care system? Should it be private? Should it right. be public? Should it be some combination of the two? Okay, now you got to have that, that that fight, and you know, libertarians are losing because it's more state intervention. But that's not even about health. Empowering the pharmaceutical companies and the AMA to make decisions that best suit them on your behalf to manage your symptoms, not about your ultimate health and well-being or that of your families. Even with that example, in the, in the integrated medicine or natural medicine or wellness medicine space, people are saying, you know, enough of the of that system. Drugs have a place, but a majority of the diseases we face are lifestyle induced. So we need to eat better. We need to sleep better. We need to love better. We need to move our body. That kind of thinking side of the system is really exciting to me. And to see people like, it's not that they have to be anti-authority. They're just reclaiming the authority of their own lives. They don't have to fight something. They just reclaim it as their birthright to live free, healthy, happy lives. And they're creating new models and maps and institutions along the way. Thanks. And I, I can't emphasize that enough as something for the, the disheartened libertarian or spectator of American politics who might see that we are losing the, as you call it, I, I love that term, the sick care debate. Uh, but we can still, in our own lives, with our families, with our friends, we can try to make progress in, the, in, in terms of our own health care. And so I would encourage people to check out your podcast, especially for uh, this kind of cognitive liberty and the, the decisions that we can make in our personal lives to exit these dysfunctional systems and the corporate state. I think that's another uh, great term. And I, I think it was Benito Mussolini who titled his propaganda book, uh, the, you know, the corporate state. And we, we like to think that, you know, we, we defeated all the bad guys in World War II, but these systems have a way of, of working themselves back into our lives uh, what do you think about the areas that are not as easy to exit? The two that jump to my mind are uh, kind of, you know, we still have to, to obviously pay taxes to a, to a government that sometimes engages in uh, spending on things that we might disagree with, whether it's, uh, whether it's wars or, uh, you know, propping up financial institutions. Uh, and then in that same vein, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, what are the groups that are trying to kind of find common ground uh, to, to reform those kinds of institutions that, that we're all locked into? Yeah, great, great questions. A few different angles into the question. Uh, I have a friend, Luba, who's an expert in uh, unschooling, you know, the, the, the whole movement that recognizes innate intelligence and curiosity of children and organizes education based on that as opposed to industrial model. And she and I talk regularly, and she actually spent a couple of years trying to figure out, is it possible to completely be removed from the Federal Reserve banking corporate state cartels? And um, she, hasn't, she hasn't come to the conclusion yet, but she doesn't think it's completely possible. And I'm kind of there, unless you completely like off the, off, off, off the grid. But even that, if you own property, you're still stuck. You still have to pay property taxes depending on what state you're in and income tax. But I'll, I'll refer your listeners to Gary Collins, who we just talked about off the grid. He has a new book that just came out literally a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Um, uh, the Simple Guide, uh, the title of his series of books, and it's on debt. Um, and, you know, he is one among many people that kind of recognize that the system we presently live in is stacked against, you know, whether you get a loan for your house, or you get a loan for your car, get a school loan, all of those things lock you into the system and make it really 
challenging, if not impossible, to be free. Uh, and he has a lot of really good ideas of like how not to be locked into this system. You still have to engage with it for the most part, but you know, you're less trapped in the system. And one of the things he recommends is getting out of debt. Don't use credit cards to pay for stuff unless you pay off your credit cards. Don't, you know, get a mortgage. Don't get a school loan. And we, you and I can, if you want to, later down the road, talk about the wastefulness of most of college these days. You know, most people should not be going to college. I shouldn't say that. A lot of people should not be going to college because it's a waste of time. And, um, you know, so we can talk about those institutions and how they don't serve us anymore and they lock you into place when you have to get a loan to pay for them. So, you know, mortgages and cars and education are ways of slowly, if you don't buy into them or at least pay them off, removing yourself from the system. And as I mentioned earlier, minimalism. Don't buy in the consumer culture. Reduce your debt, reduce your expenditures, reduce your footprint. You'll have more time and money to have the kind of life you want to lead. I don't think it's possible completely to remove yourself from the matrix if you want to use that as the kind of the analogy. You know, you can take the proper pill and kind of see it for what it is. And we can talk about that too. Uh, there's some interesting pills out there that help you kind of de- deconstruct your mind or decondition your mind. Um, but ultimately, I, I don't know how possible it is yet. Um, and you brought up the Federal Reserve. So um, I was lucky to work for the Campaign for Liberty, which is Ron Paul's group. I worked for Norman Singleton, who runs the campaign back in 2010 or 11. And I co-led, I, I was the right winger, the libertarian, and I co-led a, a transpartisan effort with James Hancher, who was a really well-known progressive, um, in support of audit of the, of the Federal Reserve. And it, it were, if it's okay with you, I'd love to tell you what we learned. Please, yeah, I think that this is actually where I wanted to go, which is these things that it seems like everyone should want, but yet no one gets uh, the transparency and accountability with these institutions. So the audit the Fed, that was Ron Paul's slogan, and it, it continues to have uh, some traction, at least I, th- I think Thomas Massey introduced a bill uh, a while back yeah. on taking up this banner. But you know, who's, who's against this? Why is it that something that is so seemingly obviously in the public interest, why does it always fall flat? And what, what did you learn from that effort? So um, we got a minor audit passed. So we got a GAO report. I think it was a 2011 when the report came out, if I'm, my number of my dates are correct. Um, now, it wasn't the full audit that Ron Paul has wanted since, you know, the 70s or whenever he started this whole effort. Um, and it wasn't even the audit that Rand Paul would, would like. It was modified, and I think it was actually modified on the floor of the Senate by Senator Sanders. Um, so we got, we got something out of it, but not completely. And it was a great transparency effort. We had groups all over the spectrum in support of this effort. The people pushing, that, pushing against us were obviously the Federal Reserve because they say, oh, we are transparent. You can read our reports. Yeah, right. You know, the banking interests, and I would say even some of the members of Congress who are on the financial services committees who have a vested interest in opaqueness when it comes to the Federal Reserve and other banking cartel type uh, institutions. Um, what we found, and this is, it was so, I was so happy we got the audit done. And I was, I was waiting for a revolution in the streets, literally, not like a violent one, like, you know, I was overthrowing the English or something like that. But, you know, like, I was like, there are trillions of dollars that the Federal Reserve loan to foreign and domestic banks and businesses. And it was all right in front of you. Like, this kind of money to this bank and this money to this bank and this foreign bank and this foreign business. And it's like right there, like, holy moly, you know, talk about crony capitalism. This is the worst of the worst. And the only thing I saw after the fact, uh, Campaign for Liberty did a press release. Bernie Sanders did a press release. And I saw like three or four articles written about it. And that was it. Dud. Now, the issue wasn't a dud, but like the bang I was expecting from the public and the media was a dud. And it's really upsetting because I was expecting like the Tea Party to come together, you know, Occupy Wall Street at the time. They were kind of a powerful central lefty group. And I even talked to them about the Fed and they knew about fiat currency and what the Fed does in terms of this manipulation of money and the hidden tax and it screws the poor middle class. And I was waiting for something and nothing. Like, man, we're just a bunch of sheep. This would be an so area. That's the Fed. Right. We, <laughs> this would be an area where some sort of passionate intensity is probably called for. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on with you is this question of kind of how to have the same sort of, uh, enter- I don't want to say entertainment quality, but, th- but there is a quality to certain things on, on social media that 
tends to get attention and tends to get traction without compromising on principles is what do you think are the ways to boost the signal of a of a press release like that i mean press releases i don't remember the last time that i read a, a complete press release uh but when these things can be framed in ways that are a little bit more relevant i mean i'm thinking in particular right now there's this whole thing about the impeachment and whether uh yeah. whether trump did something wrong in the phone conversation with the ukrainian president or whether it was actually what he was talking about in that conversation that was revealing the wrongdoing of another presidential candidate, Joe Biden, who uh, had previously bragged publicly about using the, the sort of financial heft of the U.S. government to, uh, to, to kind of influence uh, Ukraine to, to fire the prosecutor. And without getting too deep into the weeds on, uh, on and the, the political mudslinging, um, what you're talking about is, you know, the Federal Reserve exerting an influence um, in all these uh, foreign countries. Is is there some sort of way that you could link those things together in order to to draw attention to what really is seems like kind of stock and trade? It's just how politics is is conducted uh, these days. Yeah. So I'll I'll actually start backwards by saying how we are manipulated online, and then how we can actually use that manipulation for our benefit if you are in fact opposing the Federal Reserve, fiat currency, and all the crap that, that it does against us. Um, there are some really cool AI technologies which can turn, for instance, if you gave me a soundbite, or if you gave me a speech, let's say you gave me a page-long speech, it could turn pieces of the speech into really cool short videos like that within a couple hours. It, just, it does that kind of stuff. It can turn out memes from speeches. Um, you know, there's really, really cool technology out there that you can take kind of boring content or white papers or you know, a press release and turn it into fun, creative, eye-catching videos and memes. Um, that's the kind of, and that's, we get manipulated all the time by that. And the same AI can also generate conversations. So, you know, if you're on Reddit or even YouTube, there is AI that will generate whole conversations to make it look like this is an important topic and there's a million people talking about it, which is not. It's just an intelligent system that is able to generate a conversation, which makes it look like it's interesting and people should pay attention to it. And then people start paying attention to it. If we could use that kind of technology on our side to help educate the American public in a fun and interesting and, and useful way on the dangers of the Federal Reserve, that can go a long way. Because, you know, except for like us eggheads in D.C., you know, most people are interested in reading a GAO report. Most people are not interested in reading a white paper. You know, they're not. They're, and the way our technology works these days, they don't even have the attention span to do so. So everything has to be like a 15-second soundbite or a 30-second video at the most. Cool content, pretty pictures, that kind of stuff. So there, there are ways we can manipulate good content, white papers, GAO reports, uh, turn it into educational materials that actually entices people to pay attention and then do something. I'm speaking with Michael Osterlank. He is host of O Radio. Uh, you can find his work at michaeldosterlank.com. Uh, Michael, where else can people find your work, by the way? They can subscribe to the, to the show in iTunes. It's also on YouTube. Uh, but wh where else would people go if they want to learn more about these ideas you're talking about? Yeah, you can also follow me on Twitter, too. Uh, I spend way too much time there, as you know. Like like me. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> like you. It's uh, M Osterlink, M-O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K. That's my Twitter handle. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny because uh, if you know me in one context, you'd be like, why is he tweeting about these other things? So people, if you follow me on Twitter, if you happen to, um, I wear many different hats. So you'll see that I tweet about foreign policy and defense policy and cybersecurity, but also health and wellness and fitness and psychedelic and environmental issues, um, transhumanism and transpersonal psychology and somatic psychology, wide variety of things because I just happen to be pretty ADD. And I love lots of topics and I study lots of different things and, and I work on a lot of wide variety of issues. So if you do follow me on Twitter, you'll notice that. But it does seem like there's a certain common thread that runs through it all. If I had to characterize it, I mean, maybe just in a single word, it would be liberty or it would be, you know, finding freedom in an unfree world. 
uh, to use the, the title of an old popular libertarian book. And I want to, while I've got you uh, here for the hour, I, I do want to get into a topic that I know next to nothing about, uh, which is cybersecurity. Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> Uh, as I mentioned earlier, and I think I mis might have misspoke, I used to be a fellow of the Center for Cyber Influence Operations Studies, um, and we looked at how state non-state actors use social media to engineer public consent in one, one way or another. That's one issue. I also work on cybersecurity itself, not influencing the public, but actually protecting systems. Uh, and one of the programs or projects I'm working on in a transpartisan way is election security. You know, we, we already know at least publicly, that the Russians did attempt to hack into various systems, whether they're actually uh, state databases for voter rolls or try to get in through the companies that produce the ballots or perhaps even into some of the machines themselves. Now, it doesn't require any state or non-state actors to actually do those things. The perception of those things occurring could be hugely problematic because you can imagine an election occurs, someone wins by not, not a lot. You know, you know, maybe they win by tens of thousands of votes in certain states. And then you find out that, you know, the Russians or the Iranians or some kid in his basement and in you know, California or whatever, uh, either attempted to, and we don't know what they actually were able to do, or you know, they, they, they broke into and they did something to various systems, or they attempted to. We don't know which one is which. So people go, wait, that means the election is valid? Yeah. Did they turn enough votes or turn away enough people from voting that the election is not a valid election? And then what happens if that's the case? You know, do, do, do we do the election? You know, if it's two years in and we figure this stuff out, that's as my friend and colleague Adam Brandon from FreedomWorks mentioned just two days ago at a Senate briefing uh, that we did, you know, if that occurs, does that mean, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court judges that this president just put on the bench and the state and, other, you know, other levels of, of federal judgeships that they put into place or other policies, are they dissolved? Did, you know, did, did they not count? Did they pull them back? Did they do redo the election? You know, what happens for those two years of policy or that year of policy? We don't want to get there, um, you know, and we also don't want to get to the point where it could lead to violence on the streets, where people don't feel like the elections were legitimate and the other side has stole them and it leads to violence. That's the last century. So, right. you know, we've helped to create the Transportation Coalition, which is pressing the federal government to both fund election security at the state level and state and local level, and also have guidelines on how the money is spent. Now, we're 10th Amendment people on the center right side of this coalition. So the federal government shouldn't be telling the states how to run their elections, but the states want to get money from the feds as grants. There's some basic guidelines that they must follow, best practices, because we don't want to, you know, oh, okay, the states get tons of money and we're five years down the road and we have the same effing problem because we have insecure, you know, we have bad, we chose badly five years previous to that. You know, we chose bad machines. So we want to make sure that machines are, that are chosen are paper machines, not the DREs, that they're auditable. I mean, we're, it's low-tech. Low-tech is the easiest thing to do and the, and the best thing to do. And that the voter rolls are protected, that the people who run the, camp, who run the elections at the state and local levels are educated on physical security, how to protect the machine, how to protect the ballots, to make sure that the ballots that go from the, the company that produces them into the machines is secure, because if you manipulate the ballots, and they go into the machines, then you're screwed. You know, how do you protect the machines once they're in place? How do you protect the machines once they're, when they're stored and being transferred to those new locations for voting? You know, there's a lot of physical and cybersecurity and educational pieces that need to be put into place. And this transpartisan coalition is working to hopefully ensure there's money to the states and localities and the money is well spent. So we don't end up in 2020 or 2022 or 2024 going is this a real election? Does this count? I guess you can't hack a, a paper ballot in the same way that you could conceivably hack some sort of electronic voter machine. And I, I like that. Uh, and the whole idea that this atmosphere of paranoia is, in a way, the greater threat. It's a secondary uh, feature of, of the actual action by uh, foreign interference. But I think that when a lot of people hear about Russian meddling, they think of people hacking into voter machines and changing the actual votes, which is something that, as you're pointing out, we can do something about if we plan it ahead in advance. And it's in everyone's interest to have the election, however it's decided, be decided firmly so that it's not what you're saying, you know, the violence in the streets or the questioning the legitimacy of 
uh, judicial decision because that's that's chaos. No no one wants that, and it plays back to what you were talking about earlier, just with fear and how fear is the, the best way to manipulate uh, a population. Um, I'm thinking of this idea of ideological subversion, which was a KGB tactic uh, that we learn about from a, a defector from the KGB who talks about just spreading you know, as much confusion and misinformation as possible and making the average person feel like there's no way that they can possibly know what's going on. So they just sort of throw up their hands in defeat. Uh, and I wonder, too, if there maybe is just no substitute when it comes to social media and things like that for the real in-person conversations. You talked about AI that might be able to sort of simulate that. And I love the idea of distilling down complex ideas into a, a shareable meme. And that's something that I've tried with varying degrees of success for, the, uh, for this show. But um, you know the conversations that uh, you and I are having or that people like Joan Blades is promoting with the Living Room Conversations, which is another organization that I think you're involved with. Um, is there any substitute ultimately for the real world conversations? You know, I would say no. Ultimately, my preference, you know, if I had a magic wand is for people to actually spend time with each other. Um, you know, I, I hear horror stories about millennials who can't even look in the eyes because they're so used to like talking to each other via text or whatever they do on their devices. You know, that to me is really sad. I think that sets us up in the long run from an evolutionary perspective for a lot of danger down the road. Because if we cannot connect with one another in a deep, heartfelt, eye-to-eye way, and I'm, not, I'm talking about spouses and families and communities, and, you know, I'm not so, not just intimate people, but when I say intimate, I'm not just like your partner or your spouse or your kids, but like your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, that's going to lead us down the road that we really don't want to go down. Like where we're unable to actually have empathy and care and compassion for other people. Without that, I think violence is the next answer and more tribalism. Um, so the more interactions we have with people, that's one of the reasons I think this whole minimalist simplicity movement is so cool. It's like, you know, nothing's wrong with technology. Let's use technology for very specific purposes, but let's put it down. Let's have conversations with each other. Let's break bread. And as a paleo person, let's break non-bread bread, you know. Um, and you know, have meals together and have coffee together and have tea together and do things together. Um, go out in nature, go hiking, you know, do whatever it happens to be that floats your boat, but with other humans, I think that's so important um, for the health and well-being of individuals and us as a community, us as a nation, and even us globally as a species. Because if you look at how we've evolved to live versus how we're living, there's a huge mismatch. And I think the, the consequences of that would be devastating down the road. There's one story I wanted to share, kind of an anecdote from a couple weeks ago. Uh, I was saying that I, I noticed something that you talk about in one of your videos uh, relating to the physiological element that there is in disagreeing with other people. I think it's important just to be aware of it. Maybe it's left over from the tribal meetings where we could actually influence outcomes more directly, political outcomes, just by you know humiliating or dominating our opponents in front of the rest of the group. I was drinking coffee outside of a Beats coffee shop here in Berkeley with a a group of group of guys, and uh, I knew some of them. And there was one guy I hadn't met before. He was sort of your classic hippie holdover from the '60s. He had the long white ponytail, and we got into this discussion. It was right around the time that this impeachment proceedings were were just getting kicked off, um, and whether Trump had done anything illegal or, or improper in that phone call. You know, I happen to think that it's it's kind of ludicrous that we're so focused on this when there are so many other areas in which government is secretly pressuring foreign officials or that intelligence is, is working in politicized ways to undermine uh, political opponents. But I made reference in this conversation just to the, the comments that, that Biden had made before it was sort of common knowledge where he was uh, talking about this, this prosecutor that it turns out, uh, you know, claims at least to have been investigating Joe Biden's son in relation to the Ukrainian gas company. My, my point was not to exonerate President Trump it was more just to lay bare the situation in which clearly I think each side is applying a double standard if they only see that it's the other guys who are pursuing their, their own political agenda. But as I was making this point, I could feel myself getting a little bit nervous, a little bit standoffish, and hoping that I could in a way just embarrass this man for not knowing what I knew 
uh, rather than actually persuade him to reconsider his position. And now he probably thinks I'm a right winger, but I was really just registering this in real time, this physiological element, and trying to take it as an opportunity to calm myself down, make maybe make the point more matter-of-factly, and step it back to the, the meta level. What have you found are some tools to sort of diffuse that kind of antagonistic quality to our political debates? Well, so I'd love to talk about the double standard, but to answer your immediate question, I love it when you talk about your own awareness, like, ooh, how you're showing up physiologically in this conversation and where your mind wanted you to go versus where you thought you might want to go. That's awesome. And that's one of the things when I coach people, because I, I, I run a coaching program, is I work with them on that. How are they showing up as an embodied being in a certain situation with another person? What, how are they triggered? You know, what happens to them physiologically? What happens to their body? What happens to their breath? What happens to their thinking, their emotion? You know, once you know how you organize yourself as a whole human being in reaction to a situation, whether in situation inside yourself, how you think about something or engaging with the second party, or a series of second parties, once that awareness becomes clear, that's when you can interdict and you can change the inner dialogue, therefore changing how you actually interact with someone. And it's not just as simple as changing how you think about it. You also want to change the physiological nature of that reaction. Um, you want to go from being reactive to responsive. So it's going from like being programmed to choice. So that's where the freedom comes in. You mentioned kind of like the guiding principles of my work is freedom. So, you know, the, the freedom is that moment you realize you're being triggered and you have this whole physiological, psychological, mental, emotional response, reaction. You interdict that. You can use breath. You can use body postures. You can use a mantra. You can change your thinking. Use, you know, there's a lot of different ways in, but just being aware of how you are triggered, doing these various practices, which we teach, then you get to the point of being more free and being responsive to the situation. So you're acting out of your neocortex, like we talked about kind of earlier, versus the reptilian mammalian parts of your brain. Uh, so you're more human. <laughs> and I even hate to use human versus animal, because that's, you know, animals are mostly so much better than us anyway, but kind of using that, that analogy. Um, so when I work with people, that's one of the things, which is the awareness of how you organize yourself and show up in that reaction. And then various tools you can use to break up that reactive uh, the reaction, the pattern you have and replace it with a series of new habits. Other things I recommend to people too is, you know, just in terms of policy is be more transparent. What I mean by that is, you know, read from other people's perspectives how they see the same issue. And you're not reading it to disabuse them of their perspective because they're wrong. Hold it lightly that you're right. Put that aside if you just for the moment, even though you might be right. And just say, why does that person believe what they believe? How do they see the world? Why do they see the world that way? And kind of put yourself in their shoes and try to see the world the way they see it. That's a really good way of, of being able to take multiple perspectives, uh, seeing the limitations of your own perspective, having a broader perspective, having empathy and understanding of other human beings, which is a great way of connecting with other people. Um, and that's, so that's another way of kind of deconditioning them. And as I kind of teased earlier, there's you know, actually some sacred medicines out there that are great tools for deconditioning the mind. But for, for the moment's sake, I'll just say, you know, at least read other or engage in conversations with other people who have different perspectives from a place of curiosity, like, why do they believe it? If you go in from a place of defensiveness that you have to prove them wrong because they're an idiot, that really doesn't help. Um, so that's kind of a couple things to consider doing to kind of help slightly decondition the mind, get a better understanding of other people, be more transparent in your approach, um, and then also, you know, gain more empathy and understanding of other human beings, which is kind of a really nice thing anyway. Those are the tools that people can use. Uh, you're, you're, you mentioned that you're a coach. Is that sort of a mindset coach or how would you describe it? You're a psychotherapist. My graduate work is in transpersonal counseling psychology and my postgraduate work is in somatic or body-oriented psychology as well as health psychology. But I also presently, I work for, and all my political commentary is my own. I don't represent my company that I'm about to say who I work for. All the stuff we just talked about, two different roles. Uh, I work for a company called SealFit, and I run um, a coaching program for them called the Unbeatable Mind Academy. I'm, I'm the master coach and head instructor for that, that company. And in that, we do a lot of the work that I just kind of talked about, not specific to politics or policy. 
for like helping to decondition the mind and free the mind <clears throat> from what we call boom, background of obviousness, cultural programming. You know, there's a lot of the cultural programming that limits our choices and doesn't allow us to really thrive in our lives. So I work with people to help them in kind of a holistic or comprehensive way to become healthier, happier, more productive, freer, uh, more connected to other people, more, you know, we talk about um, emotional resiliency and mental toughness and functional fitness, but also care, compassion for other human beings. So, you know, it's a, a well-rounded program. So that's where I apply some of my skills as a therapist, but through the lens of the coach. And sadly, we're coming to the close of the hour, but I've been speaking with Michael Osterlank. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at M Osterlank. That's O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K. And he's also host of O Radio, which is a podcast on wide-ranging topics, as he's mentioned. But the, that common thread there is a sort of finding freedom in, in the modern world where there's so much of this mismatch. Uh, and we did start into the, the conversation about the double standard. Uh, if, if you have any closing thoughts on that or any, anything else that you want to share. I appreciate that. So really briefly, um, I spent about 10 years working on national security whistleblower issues. So I'm pretty familiar with the whistleblower laws and how they work. And I would say when you watch MSNBC or Fox, whatever you're watching, take it, hold it very, very lightly. Because when you see, for instance, Democrats on the intelligence committee in favor of whistleblowers, that's BS. The committee members, they've been the enemies of whistleblower protection, worse than the actual intelligence agencies. So when any one side says you're all sudden for something, don't believe it. For example, when the Republicans, some of the Republicans came out against Pfizer because it was used allegedly against Trump or some of his associates with the campaign, that's BS. Those are the same people who voted in favor of Pfizer every time they come up for reauthorization. So hold very lightly anyone in D.C. claiming to support something. Watch them over time. Do they say they have the same set of principles or are they only principle when it comes to partisan interest? That's my double standard talk. Thank you, Michael, for, for sharing some of your insights uh, with our audience, uh, this has been a wonderful hour, and I hope that our listeners will go and, and explore your work in more detail. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been awesome. Appreciate it. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. A waste of desert land, a shape with lion body, and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it wind shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed in nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born.